This is Mark Miller, host of An Innovator's Journey to DevOps. An Innovator's Journey is a series of interviews profiling software development thought leaders and DevOps practitioners. We highlight real people, real stories, and real solutions for building modern software. Mick Kirsten, CEO and founder of TaskTop, has an interesting story to tell. While most DevOps initiatives are built around the idea of tool chain automation and cultural transformation, Mick wants you to think deeper than that. He wants you to be able to create a value stream, giving you the ability to determine the real business value of your DevOps initiative. In this Innovator's Journey to DevOps, we talk with Mick about his path to DevOps, his current projects, and what he hopes to accomplish in the coming year. Were you like a geek as a kid? Bit of an interesting start, I suppose. So when I was nine years old, nine and a half years old, uh, my parents decided to escape communism in Poland, and we kind of made it through Checkpoint Charlie. I didn't even realize we were leaving. I thought we were going on a brief vacation. Um, and in Belgium, uh, we were staying with some people who were helping us out because you don't really get to bring much out of the country in, in such situations. So the, the people who were helping us out actually gave me as a, as a birthday gift a Texas Sinclair ZX1000 uh, computer, which was this 2K computer that you hooked up to your television. And it had a manual in basic, and I didn't speak English. Uh, so I got certain technology, translate, I thought this was the coolest thing ever, I'd never seen any such things. I had seen at my dad's office, because my dad, father was a professor in Warsaw, uh, a, a System 360, which I thought was, 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 was incredible. Um, and then I had this thing that was on my own, and so I just started hacking with it. But the manual was in English, that it was a, is a basic manual, the basic was the programming language, and so I translated it from English to Polish, and I learned basic, and through the process, I learned English as well, so. Oh, that's cool, that's cool. So you were nine years old, what year was that? Uh, that was 84. 1984, so you've been at it for a while. Then uh, when you moved uh, through uh, learning English, teaching yourself, did the school system help at all? What was going on with that? So, I, I mean, the school system was tricky because we, when we escaped from Poland, we got stuck in Belgium for a while while my parents made, made some money for that, and we got accepted uh, as immigrants into Canada. And then actually the Canadian government pays for your immigration, interesting, interestingly. Um, my father fairly, just a f six months after that, he actually did get a job as a professor. It was, it was hard for a while, but then he got one. And it was 1984, right? So the, the Mac had just come out. And so I, I wasn't understanding anything in school because it was all in English and I didn't speak the language. but my father ended up with the original Mac, and, and that just completely blew my mind. So I think that that's when everything got cemented. It's kind of my passion for, for what technology can do um, in terms of you know, both the creative side of building things, building software, um, and then connecting people. And so you know, those original Macintosh programs were awesome. I, I got to meet some of the people on, from the original Macintosh team at one point, so it's, it's been an interesting thread, but that's really where it started. In school, I, I think I, I learned a lot. I, I got my science background, but it wasn't really until I got to university that I started taking this, this stuff more seriously. Back then, it was just a, a bit of a passion. 
It was an exciting time. I remember getting that first Mac too in 84. <laughs> um, yeah. And it was interesting because, you know, IBM had come out with the PC and they had that going on, but the Mac came out and just blew it out of the water when you first saw it. It was so exciting. Yeah, it, you know, it gave you that glimpse of what technology could do. It, it was amazing what it was, but 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 where it could go. Um, and I think that got so many of us excited that you know that kind of sparked that flame that that that's that's still driving a lot of our our passions today. So that's that's where it started for me. And then you moved quickly then into university in the mid '90s. It sounds like, and wh where was that? Yeah, at that point, I was actually more interested in culture. So I I started anthropology, uh, and I did I did an honors thesis anthropology kind of a couple years in at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, uh, and then I started doing evolutionary simulations because I thought it was just very slow to study evolution in real time. And so I started doing a lot of software to do that, and then I just got really interested through that process in, in complex software and how, you know, what it actually meant to do a, a large simulation uh, and how difficult building complex software was. And so I just started taking all these comp sci courses and, and got sucked into comp sci and, and very passionate around, uh, around especially around complexity. That's, that's fascinating. I don't think anybody I've talked to in the whole series started out college with a computer science going, I'm gonna be a computer scientist. Oh, really? Nobody did. Because yeah. they, they found that the technology was as interesting as the subject they were learning. Yeah. And then they would move into the technology. I think that's fascinating. Yeah, I think that's the case for a lot of the interesting people I've I, I talked to and work with as well, is that you know the technology is 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 a means and you need to learn it to to do something that you really care about, be that you know a, a social good, be that you know, in, in my case, I'm just I've just been very interested in, in manufacturing complexity and, and human progress. It's I think there is a set of people who who saw computer science and programming as a as a means, and and I definitely fall into that camp myself. So, did you get any lifelong relationships there from going to university there? I did actually because the professor that and I'll just tell you you know a really quick story. I, I told it to my team just last week, but there was a professor, it, it, and it was in a software engineering course, my first real software engineering course, after you, you do a couple programming courses. And she just gave all these real world examples, that, that some of which blew my mind. So at that time, uh, she, and she'd been working, her name was Gail Murphy, and she was a computer science prof, and she took us through you know, all the latest and greatest ways of thinking about software and thinking about architecture and all that stuff that was going on with like an objectory and UML and all these, all these ways of, of making software more visual, which to me was really interesting because I'm, I'm, I'm a very visual person. Then, but then she also told all these real stories and had us implement things around that and a, and a story that, that just you know, that stuck with me that I, I just told our whole team last week was the story of the 777. And so Boeing, Whenever they create a plane, they bet the whole company. If 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 the triple seven had failed, and at that point it was unclear whether it was going to succeed or fail, if the triple seven had failed, Boeing would would have massive and potentially cataclysmic problems. And and Gail at that time was telling all of us, you know, young undergrad students, uh, how just how important software was becoming in the way that the these 
you know, these these devices, these in this case this this plane functioned in the future because it was going to be the first commercial airliner that was fly by wire. There was no physical linkages between the controls and the and the flaps and such. So there was just all this additional complexity. And she told the story of the decision that Boeing made to put the engineers, the engineering heads, on the maiden flight of the triple seven. You know, basically, just how everyone had to get bought into this transformation that, that Boeing had to go through to become a software company, and just how dramatic a thing that was. They actually experienced some major, some significant turbulence, and they had to correct some of the some of the software mid-flight on that maiden flight, and it just completely um, shifted my thinking into how, at that point, this was, I guess, this was around '97. Um, how critical software and the way we build software and then these the way we manage software delivery because it blew my mind that you put all these people on this you're basically on the on the first flight of this aircraft that might crash and is all flown by software yeah how, how just a profound shift we were seeing and i think what you know it's amazing is it was, it was clear back then and we're just seeing more and more of it now so Gail Murphy has been an absolute long li lifelong collaborator. She was my PhD thesis supervisor. She's test up chief scientist, and we're doing all sorts of cool stuff uh, together every week still. So, did you work with her and Mark? I know Gail, and so she's been working on that communication patterns and open source component supply chains for a while with Mark. Yes, exactly. And we, you know, we've had this common thread, Gail. Gail and I of you know not just looking at the architecture of software because so much in terms of how to make large-scale software effective, but really the social aspects and the collaboration aspects and these emergent structures that span software architecture that really have to do with the way people work uh, and the way organizations work and the way organizations form and evolve and and the kind of Conway's laws fit, pitfalls they fall into. I think that's been one of the most most uh, important collaborations to me, which all started back then, but which, you know, taking that different approach to software and software architecture uh, in terms of how we really make it work at scale and how we take a different approach to it. A lot of the terminology you just used there relates directly to DevOps. Do you remember the first time you heard about DevOps? Yeah, I do. And I think, you know, the interesting thing at that point was it was, what was interesting to me was not anything new I'd heard, and it was, I guess, for a lot of us, for me, it was absolutely around the, you know, the Flickr stuff, uh, going around the, the number of deploys per day and so on. I thought I'd been building on my projects in open source software that way for a while, so I thought, oh wow, but, you know, this is this is this is happening more now. The notion of not deploying multiple times a day when we were doing that, um, when we we're working on things like the Eclipse Mile project, was was just bizarre. But it was really interesting to see that this movement was coming from collaboration and breaking down these silos between the way commercial software was built. I knew with open source software, you just kind of had to do this. If you didn't iterate that quickly, you wouldn't have an open source project that was successful because no one would use it because people thrive on consuming, you know, consuming features, consuming cool new stuff. And it really did help me understand just that there was how far a distance there was from that idealized way of developing things to the reality that a lot of professional developers and and uh, and release engineers were were living day to day, and so I, I did get interested in it fairly early because of that. Less because of it seemed new, to more because of it identified a problem that 
I hadn't even to that point realized how big a problem that was. So it's interesting again the consistency in the people that I'm talking to. When DevOps first came on the radar, everybody goes, "Oh yeah, yeah, that's the way to do it. That's the way we've all been doing it. Now it has a name." Yeah. <laughs> And it, it's been interesting to follow that trend. When when you've got your company now, does the work that you did with Gail, is that influencing how you're structuring your company? Every week, yeah. I think, you know, we've, and I'm exaggerating every week, it absolutely influences how we think about the organizational structure of the development teams and, and the company as a whole. So uh, there's been work done by Gail and uh, other researchers on socio-technical congruency and, and and those kinds of things, but yeah, we've also seen uh, other other things in industry you know, take take hold. Things like the notion of feature teams and so on. And so I think for me, the core thing around DevOps, around the right ways of doing agile and Scrum and setting up team Scrum teams and teams of teams, um, all those things that we've we've seen happening, is that we need to think about not. In terms of how we structure teams and architecture and so on, I think that it's it's in the end the core concepts of of lean need to be applied to end-to-end -end software delivery. So, in the end, it's it's around the notion of pull, and I, I felt this in a way that I'll you know that'll continue to shape my career. In open source, you've got all this pull from people that you're interacting with daily, and, and in my case, it was thousands of people creating bug reports and 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 feature requests. Uh, on back then, it was the the Eclipse Smiling project before the that the Aspect J project, but always dealing with this this immense pull of things that people wanted from your open source that they were using more and more. And in open source, it's interesting because you know you'll have often have uh, a, a small number of core committers, and then ten, a hundred, or a thousand times the number of users just wanting more stuff, uh, and ask you know. Asking, you can ask them to contribute and so on. So you can do very interesting things with that. But there's this, there's this very strong pull, and that pull in the end is the value stream, right? It's 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 taking resources behind your software project that can be, you know, the late nights that you're spending coding cool features, uh, and and basically delivering them to the to the to the end users that you're trying to delight. And so the the core thing for us has, has been to orient the entire organization around that value stream. And in the end, that value that means that your teams have to be aligned around, around value streams, which often the way that we market products I mean that they're, they're aligned around applications or, or basically products, uh, but <clears throat> completely the opposite of so much of what, what we have seen in large-scale software projects in industry, which is, which is aligned around projects and so on. So, so you know, we've also learned a lot over the last decade with you know what effective team sizes are uh, and how to make teams effective and the fact that they need autonomy and so on. But really, aligning around the value stream where the software value stream is defined by collaboration, and that's why DevOps is so important because you're establishing the right lines of collaboration between the people managing and deploying and operating the application, the people building it, and it has to be a very tight feedback loop, as as, as we all know. Yeah, shifting that thinking from sort of architecture-centric thinking, where you somehow align your organization and team structures around your layered architecture. I think all that stuff is just completely wrong, right? That is Conway's law, and that is that is the the effect you saw when you opened up that those first 
PCs that you mentioned, Mark. But aligning your your organization around the value stream to optimize for the value stream and give the people who are delivering on that autonomy, make sure they've got the right collaboration collaborations across the value stream because those will always be across your across your your, your functional di divisions. Um, that's what's so key, and that's that's where that's what Gail and I discovered in research. And that's that's very much what we're applying at Tastop and the view that we have for the industry going forward as well. How much were you influenced by your work at the Eclipse Foundation? I know you're still on the board there, I think, but you you've had a long span with them. How has that influenced you? Yeah, the Eclipse Foundation influenced me tremendously because it was, and I'd worked a lot on open source at. Uh, the, the aspect in aspect of programming project, which then can fed into the, the lineage of the Spring framework um, and the collaborations we had around that, that definitely shaped my thinking on a, on a very effective way to build software. The Eclipse Foundation helped me understand that at scale because you know all of a sudden we were sitting on 60 million lines of, of open source code on Eclipse, which formed the core IDE. That's sort of the, the scale of an operating system. Um, like OS 10 or, or, or Windows 10. Um, and and it, it shaped my sense in terms of how you scale this kind of collaboration and this, this continuous delivery, but also, also uh, you know, managing the feedback and really the, the feedback loop at scale between end users and then the, the development teams. And then blurring that feedback loop by having actually the end users contribute and so on, and how you end up with this, this very interesting pyramid. So I think the main thing is, on the Milan project, we were able to establish such a closed loop and a scaled out closed loop that we were able to innovate very quickly and just, just write hundreds of, you know, every year, just hundreds of thousands of lines of code uh, were produced that delivered more and more value very quickly when when the project was was kind of at its peak and it, and, it, and Eclipse was was on the rise as a Java IDE. So that still inspires me today is how you create that tight a feedback loop and that level of of personal and team productivity and organizational productivity uh, with within within today's large organizations. So having seen it worked and lived it for years. It's been a huge motivation for me because it's not easy, but I fundamentally believe you can reproduce that level of of, of productivity within a within a large organization. I also believe that most large organizations are not even a tenth of the way there in terms of the the amount of business value delivered per per IT staff. I, I would agree with you on that. When you're looking back, you've been doing this for 20 years now. What's what's? I, have. I guess I yeah. Have. I did the math real quick. <laughs> <laughs> um, when you, when you look back, what's the thing you're most proud of? Is it a, a project? Is it is a concept that you help people understand. What are you most proud of that you've done? Right now, and this could be some recency talking. The, the thing I'm most proud of is this is this notion of value stream thinking. Uh, which is tied together a lot of the things that I've, I've been trying to get our teams to do, I've been trying to get our, our customers and, and, and our partners to think about, which is that effective software is not about 
architecture first or agile being the core thing or just getting your DevOps automation done. For me, the really interesting thing is when you get those things done, it's obvious you have to do that. If you don't deploy some kind of agile delivery that's the right size for your organization, you're not going to, to thrive. Your organization will decline over time. If if you don't, you know, if you don't succeed with DevOps, you will decline and start up some startups going to eat your lunch eventually or or some some 20 startups. So really for me the the key thing right now, the thing I, I spend the most time thinking about and, and collaborating with 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 people on is is really once that's done, because we know a bunch of startups that is done. They've got agile and DevOps working. It's it's fine. Once once that's done, you know, what's next? And how do you make your organization more effect, effective? How do you connect software literally closer to the business and and so on? And really for me, the the whole notion of value stream thinking coming together as the way to shape the way you approach your architecture, your agile transformation, your DevOps transformation uh, is, is, is right now the thing that I'm most proud of. I guess the problem is it's, it's not quite done. Uh, I'm still <laughs> very much working on sort of the, the core ideas and concepts. With TaskUp, we've got a platform that supports that and so on. But just the feeling of, of all of this coming together, both the, the things that motivate me 10 years ago and 20 years ago, in terms of you know looking for a better approach, making developers more happy, more productive, and and keeping them more in the flow of their work, uh, then extending that you know for me the big thing was well realizing it's not just about developers at one point that you do have these different people involved and they're, they're testers and support people and ops people and business analysts and people who like to, to design you you know screens. So coming together with a conceptual framework around value stream integration and visibility and just Indian value stream thinking, that's, that's, that's the thing I guess at this point I'm proud of, that these ideas are coming together, not, and not just my ideas, but, but all these different people who I've been collaborating with, more recently Gene Kim um, and Nicole Forsgren, all these, these things coming together, uh, both on the product side and the, how we think about, about soft, uh, improving software delivery once we've got Agile and DevOps deployed. That's a, a great segue into what your plans are, because I'd like to know when I talk to you a year from now, I'm going to call you next March. What do you hope to accomplish by next March? That's an interesting question. So by next March, the most important thing to me is that we've got a framework, a value stream framework that organizations can can quickly apply. I think what's happened is organizations going in, especially, again, I'm, I'm most interested in, I love startups, and but I'm most interested in how this works at scale because I think we, we basically have so many companies right now, even the startups, growing up and then hitting these, these complexity limits where, uh, you know, my another one of my, my close colleagues, Dave West, uh, more recently told me that around the 100 mark is where you start, 100 people mark, you start seeing Agile break down, and it's exactly what we have seen happen. So that we have a framework for scaling DevOps and Agile to, to thousands of staff, and I really think that that's, that, that is this, this new approach to a, a value stream framework, where it's not that we replicate the ideas that work for manufacturing, because software is a slightly different beast than you know, the nuts and bolts that make a car, or the, at least the, the, the hardware aspects of a car, 
but that we take that same inspiration and a lot of what we've done in terms of DevOps and and agile is 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 the is the lean thinking and the theory of constraints and so on, but that we have a framework for scaling uh, DevOps and agile deployments and identifying you know where CIO should invest. So is it really the knee-jerk reaction everyone has right now of just hire more developers, or is that not the constraint? And what happens if you actually have got continuous delivery deployed? Uh, are you delivering more business value, or or are all of your problems upstream now? because everyone's waiting on wireframes or something of that sort. So a year from now, when, when you call, I think that, that that'd be success for me, is that there's a clear framework on how to do that, and that all of the collaborations that we're having right now, that, that all the conversations I'm having right now, um, have basically meant that this thing's annealed enough that an organization can just take it and implement it. And you know, as we've actually seen some of our, uh, uh, the, the interesting thing is I wouldn't believe this could be true if I hadn't seen organizations do that. Take this value stream approach, implement it. And then, um, you know, those are those are some of my closest collaborations right now with people like Carmen Diardo from Nationwide who are implementing this today. You have been listening to An Innovator's Journey to DevOps. Today's broadcast was produced by Mark Miller with support from Shannon King, Jessica Dodson, and Derek Weeks. To hear the entire series of interviews, go to sonotype.com and choose Innovators. We'll see you next time as we continue our exploration of real people, real stories, and real solutions for building modern software. Finally, thanks to George Cole and his quintet for taking us home with a little gypsy jazz. Take it home, George. <laughs>